Revelation chapter 17, we see the fall of Babylon. Now, it had already been said that that was going to happen. Uh, Revelation 14, verse 8. Babylon is fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, the, the mother of heart. Okay. Well, you know as well, I hope you know by now, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, that you do not start with chapter 1 of Revelation and read through to chapter 22 in a chronological fashion. If you do, it makes no sense. And we have many of our friends that do that. And uh, it's up to them to explain how you can see the final judgment and the second coming of Christ over and over and over again throughout the book. That becomes their problem to have to explain. But what we ought to see the book of Revelation as is the battle between Christ and Satan, the forces of God and the church with those that hate God and hate the church. And uh, it's something that the first century Christians could read and apply to themselves and that we should read and apply to ourselves and at the end of the day, see that Christ wins. He's the victor. And um, that's said over and over and over again. So we're going to see Babylon riding high in chapter 17. We're going to see the fall of Babylon at the end of the chapter. And then we're not going to get there at all. In fact, we, we won't do more than read 17, chapter 17. You get to chapter 18, you see the, the people weeping over Babylon, weeping that she's been destroyed, and, and wailing, and, uh, and just uh, upset because of it. That's got a whole other meaning behind it. And then chapter 19, we see the saints in heaven rejoicing that Babylon has finally been destroyed. It, it's quite an interesting thing, and it's hard to pick it apart. Um, I told somebody, um, told just Joe a few minutes ago, Actually, my biggest problem with this is I had three different sermons I was working on at the same time, and I had to figure out which one to preach. So that's what we're doing here tonight. May God help us towards that end. So basically, we see this falling on the heels of the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl of judgment in chapter 16. And we'll look at that in a few moments too. But let me just say, sometimes it seems like the world is, is never going to change. And change seems impossible. And Babylon was the greatest empire of her day. But when you look at it historically, her day was relatively short-lived. And um, it ended in a day. Literally ended in a day. Rome was the greatest power, really more powerful than Babylon became. It was the greatest power maybe ever, maybe the greatest empire ever, seemed impossible to defeat, but Rome eventually fell. And there's not a single kingdom that won't eventually fall, even if it's at the second coming of Christ. So, every world power that ever has been or will be is destined to fall one day, if not in this life, certainly when the Lord returns. I'd like to give you an overview of what we're talking about here just by reading chapter 17 very quickly and uh, divide it into three parts, and then we'll spend most of our time on verse 1. Chapter 17 of Revelation, the first six verses, and this is about um, the judgment on Babylon. Come see the judgment of Babylon. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, so you can see we've gone back now into chapter 16, 
one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. It's interesting, there's another angel that will say, Come, and I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. You know? And, there, and I, I'm not going to do it tonight. I, it's in my notes for later use. But there's a contrast, a, a contrast between the prostitute and the pure bride of Christ. So I've got to stop there all. I'll preach that instead. Okay. Okay. Who's seated on many waters. Of course, that's people and, and nations and such. That even explained it in verse 5, if you, if you notice. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. By the way, that's not just necessarily what we think of as sexual immorality with a prostitute. Uh, but this has to do with all sorts of sins. And, and many times we're talking about um, idolatry. All kinds of idolatry. It's in the Old Testament continuously being used of sexual immorality uh, going against God. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth, as you know that's the lost, have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And we've seen this woman before. 13.1. She not this woman, but this beast, sorry. We've seen this beast before in 13.1. But our attention is drawn to the woman. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name uh, of mystery, Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Okay. How long, O oh Lord, before you avenge us? You remember that? The, the souls under the altar? Well, here's one of the great murderers of God's people here. The, beast, the woman that rides on the beast. Then we get to 6 through 14. I'm not going to read it pretty much without comment because any kind of comment would take an awful lot of time. And uh, would, would really uh, probably draw us away from where I want to go tonight. But we will deal with it, I promise you. And it's where people really get tripped up. These ten kings, who are they? It's, well, maybe it's the European common market. You know, and, and people that like to read the newspaper and try to figure out everything. And, and uh, the preterists will, will say, well, it's got to be the emperors of Rome. And they'll try to number them. And they come up with different numbers like that. The trouble with the European common market being of the ten kings, a revived European common market, they're going to have to go some ways from now because there's 27 countries in the European common market at the moment. So you've got to whittle it down to ten if you're a dispensationalist. But at any rate, I digress. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth, okay, and those again are the lost, the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. 
you might remember, that's the beast that had the head that was wounded with a mortal wound and then resurrected in a, a fake uh, idea of the Trinity here. Okay. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, which kind of aligns us with Rome. And there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. Okay, that's pretty confusing, isn't it? Yeah, admittedly so. I'm not even going to deal with it right now. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They'll make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords, king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then I think it's kind of surprising what happens next. I call it the surprising and shocking end of the woman. Notice what happens. Verse 15. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So you know we haven't made that up. Just say that's what the waters symbolize. Right there it is. Um, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put, here's the reason. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose of being one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. In other words, she's actually destroyed by God in a secondary way because God uses the beast and those that follow the beast to destroy her. And uh, Jesus asked, um, kind of interesting, Jesus asked when he was accused of casting out demons by Satan, he said, uh, can Satan be divided against Satan? If he does, his kingdom will come to an end. And I think here we see at the end of time, as we go to the end here, uh, we see Satan divided against Satan, the beast, of course, wanting worship and power for himself. And God having put it into their hearts destroy this prostitute. And chapter 18 is the wail and lament of uh, the merchants that traded with her. Okay. So, she's riding high, but God puts an end to it in his own way. Now, why is she called Babylon? Okay. And I think that's worth looking at and even making some modern day applications to Uh, There really is no Babylon today like uh, what we're going to see. We're going to go back into Daniel and take a look at what Babylon was all about. Uh, But, um, you know, there is no Babylon per se today. And Rome even has taken different forms than it used to have. But let me read you from a friend of mine. And I just came across this last night or maybe two days ago. Um, I thought it was really good. I was trying to figure out how to say it. Let me quote my friend Max Donner here. He says, the reason why Babylon is called the great harlot is because just like a prostitute, anti-Christian society allures and tempts and seduces 
and draws people away from God. It draws people away from God through enticements of ostentatious luxury, corrupt entertainment, sexual perversion, and mind-altering drugs. Now, that's not the only way, but this is what Max saw as Babylon as we see it today. Babylon appeals to men's pride, to their lust for power, for their desire to be worshipped by others, and to be glorified in the eyes of men. I think that's always true. Babylon encompasses the whole of the corrupt culture of the world that appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In a word, Babylon is anti-Christian society in all of its vices, in all of its humanism, in all of its blasphemies against God. Babylon says to the people of the world, come and fornicate with me. Taste of my pleasures and indulge in my vices. I'll give you a garden of delights, and you'll find an intoxicating fulfillment of every desire you have, no matter how evil it may be. I offer it all. And that just, it isn't a quote from Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, but it's the idea of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, as you see the harlot there. This, then, is the great harlot Babylon that seduces the people of the earth to yield themselves to evil and to turn away from God. And then I'll read just a little bit more, because he sums it up by saying, whenever, the world, whenever in the world unsaved people gather to form a society, that is where Babylon exists. No matter the nationality, no matter the language, no matter the race. Babylon is the collective cultural consensus and the anti-Christian society of all those who bear the mark of the beast, wherever they live throughout the world, in whatever age in which they live. In a word, in a word all wicked societies are Babylon the great harlot, wherever they may be, distributed throughout the world. Simply put, Babylon is anti-Christian society that seeks to seduce the believer into forsaking Christ and make all people drunk so they cannot see uh, her for what she really is. That really strikes home to me. It explains a lot of what we see in our own day. I have not advocated reading the newspaper to try to figure out the book of Revelation, but I do advocate um, reading the newspaper or, or whatever you happen to do to see what human nature is all about. And you know as well as I do that this has been a week of turmoil. And um, I rejoice to see Roe v. Wade um, taken away, as it will should have been. It never should have been. It never should have been. And it's caused all kinds of things. But I have to admit, I've been a little shocked at the reaction of those that want Roe v. Wade. I'm shocked at their reaction and for showing themselves to be what they are. They're like drunk, drunk with the harlot's um, wine, you know, and, um, and in the drunkenness of sin, they pervert the truth. And all you got to do is think about our own society, you know. Um, I think we're almost at the end of Pride Month, you know. Well, if you don't celebrate Pride Month or you dare to speak against it, you're a hateful bigot. That's just the way it's turned into. You're a hateful bigot. And people really believe that, by the way. Probably the majority of people believe it at this point, to be honest with you. And anti-abortion, obviously, our, 
own church had a ministry that we protested outside of, of Planned Parenthood. And uh, we talked about loving life, respecting life, and those things. Well, it's turned into, if you're anti-abortion, you hate women. And you want to enslave women. And I've heard, um, I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard a form of this saying, uh, from ladies saying, my rights have been taken away. I have less rights than my grandmother had, you know. And they believe it. They believe it with all their heart. And I saw a sign uh, on television I saw. It said, Supreme Court, you have blood on your hands. <laughs> well, I agree. If you want to go back to 1973, yeah, they got blood on their hands. And it, okay, so this is where we go. This is what the woman is all about. Okay, she has an anti-God philosophy. And she uses that anti-God philosophy to draw people away from God. And they come to really believe it, you know. And um, people were crying, literally crying. Others were angry. And I don't think it's going to stop. I think we're going to keep on hearing this, you know. And if you want, and you know I don't like to be political. But I'll be political just this one time, Okay. And you can disagree with me now. You can disagree with me, because when we talk about politics, you can disagree. But I I really think that uh, as great as this was, and this is what should have happened, uh, it will be used uh, to probably help the Democrats in a tremendous way. You know, I think think we're going to see a backlash and, and motivated voters going out there and uh, I have said this before. Um, the Roman Catholic Church should be ashamed of itself for having people like Pelosi and Biden that are standing strong for abortion. But you know what? Baptists can be ashamed too. And I don't say that just to balance things out. It's just true. I mean, who was the one that came up with the change their view? And by the way, Look at many of the candidates, Democratic candidates, many of them used to be anti-abortion. But when they run, they're pro-abortion. Always. Always. And, um, you know, who was the famous president that coined the term that most people like to use nowadays, that believe in abortion, and say, well, personally, I'm against abortion. And personally, I would never allow for an abortion in my family but I believe it's a woman's right to choose. Bill Clinton, a Baptist, right? (laughs) And he got that advice from a liberal Baptist pastor. Not his own pastor, because his own pastor was strongly anti-abortion, but got that from a liberal Baptist pastor when he was gonna run for president and he knew he couldn't run for president on an anti-abortion platform. Couldn't be done. So the beast is politics, by the way. The, be- beast is pl- the beast is political power. The beast is uh, just all the sorts of things that just control. And the harlot that sits on the beast, here in Revelation 17, is the seducing spirit that calls out for luxury, ostentatiousness, pleasure, carnality of all sorts, 
And that's what we see pictured. And it isn't just present-day America. It is present-day America, but it's the entire world of the present day, and it's been that way from the time of the churches in Revelation till now. And that's what we see happening, you know. So that's the one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. And uh, we find out that she's Babylon. That's what we find out. Now, why is she called Babylon? Okay. Turn with me to, to Daniel chapter... Well, before you do that, instead of turning you, go back to chapter 6, verse 12. Let's read about the bowls. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great <coughs> river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for kings of the east. Now, it's kind of interesting. The reason the waters were dried up here was so that to give a, a nice path, uh, at least spiritually speaking, if not literally, uh, for the kings to assemble and be able to, to move into position where they would be destroyed. Okay. But this actually literally happened. Um, the waters of the Euphrates were dried up, and that's basically how Babylon came to be destroyed. We're going to look at that in just a few moments here. And I saw it coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the unholy trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs. For there are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew that's called Armageddon. And it'll be a while before we get to Armageddon, but we'll look at that in, in more detail. And just like we're going to look at more detail of, of the seventh bowl uh, as we go through here. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, such as never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And we saw that in 15 through 18, by the way. And then the great hailstones, uh, and the people didn't repent. They just continued on in their sin. So why Babylon? Turn to Daniel chapter 5. Give you some time to get there. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was used by God to punish Judah. If you have any doubt about that, just read the book of Jeremiah. Because over and over again, Jeremiah tells the people, submit to Babylon that's where you're going to be for the next 70 years, basically. You're going to have to make houses there. You're going to have to live there. You're going to have to farm there. You're going to have to work there. You've been removed from your land. It's really God that's removed you. But you will return to your land. That's, that's basically the message of the book of Jeremiah. And, of course, the people didn't like that message. And they fought against it, going so far as to capture, you know. They said, we're going to go down to Egypt. Jeremiah says, don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt, you know. So they capture Jeremiah, and they take him down to Egypt with them. Okay, that's the book of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, in a nutshell there. Well, 
here there's a Nebuchadnezzar's not on the throne anymore, and his son, uh, Belshazzar, is on the throne. And Belshazzar decides to throw a party. And it's a wicked party. He's going to have drunkenness. He's going to have all kinds of uh, licentiousness and stuff like that. They're going to praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But the party was abruptly stopped. And everyone was terrified, especially Belshazzar. So the temple was destroyed. And these are the temple implements that are being used now. They have a drunken feast and such. And um, with that being said, um, we go back to, let's see where we're going to go here. Yeah. We can start at verse 13. The words were written on the wall. They really, well, we'll get to the words in just a second. But the words were, were pretty simple. They were forms of Arabic, Aramaic were verbs, sorry. The wise men knew what the words said, but they didn't have an idea what the meaning was. But the queen, she remembered that there was a man, Daniel, who knew how to interpret. So we pick it up at verse 13. And Daniel was brought before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. All the things, by the way, that the prostitute would like to give that rides on the beast along with the power of the beast that was centered in Babylon at this particular time. Well, you can see Daniel's disdain for this whole idea and for this wicked ruler. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. And his his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind. And sets it over whom he will. Of course, you can read that in Daniel chapter 4. And you, his son Belshazzar. Have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house, of course the temple that was destroyed in Jerusalem, the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, 
And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose in all your ways you have not honored. You can kind of see a call for repentance there. Why would he go into all that trouble to tell Belshazzar this? It's the grace of God that leads to repentance, but it goes unheeded. And that's what happens to the non-elect reprobate. The calls for repentance will go unheeded, but they still should be given because you don't know who's elect and who's not elect. Then Daniel gives the interpretation. Verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, and parson. Like I said, three verbs uh, of, from the Aramaic. And um, this is the interpretation. Many. God has numbered. And that just means numbered, from what I'm told. I don't know Aramaic, but I'm told that that's what it means. If Sargon were here, he could tell us, right? He speaks Aramaic. But um, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. So the word numbered has a meaning behind it. Tekel, you've been weighed, and that's what it means, weighed, in the balances and found wanting. Then Perez, this one's difficult because um, it it seems to, to be two different things. Your kingdom is divided. That appears to be, Perez seems to be divided but uh, there's also the idea of um, Medes and Persians probably being in there. And so your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So there's the interpretation of the mysterious hand that wrote on the wall. Then Belshazzar gave the command. And you might think, say, put this guy to death for giving such a, a horrible you know, prophecy against me. But that's not what happened. Belshazzar gave the command... And Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. It can happen. It can happen in a day. It can happen in a night. It appears, we you know, tried to read up on this historically. Of course, the archaeologists are all over the place. But it appears that... Uh, there really wasn't a lot of bloodshed in Babylon. They came in. They didn't destroy the city. They simply took over, probably by going under the wall, by the dried up Euphrates River. It's the best guess that uh, they have. And, um, the, and then we get a sense from the rest of the book of Daniel of what's going on. Daniel, honored by Darius. Well, you might have expected that somebody in this high position himself would have been executed. But again, the providence of God rules over all. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And never forget that. If you, if you have the same misfortune that I probably do too much of to watch the news, remember the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Okay, And uh, that's something we must never forget. You know. Okay, with all that being said and done then, let's go back to, to Revelation 17. So there's Babylon. Babylon, used by God 
to punish the people of God, to destroy the temple, to wake them up and to punish them for their, their sins uh, of um, covenant breaking. Seventy years. But then God brings them back. And that was done under Cyrus. Uh, they come back and um, they're allowed to rebuild their temple. Wouldn't be nearly as great as the first. It's very small in comparison. But it would be built, and it would be built. And of course, um, by the time of Christ, and by the time we get to the New Testament, right before the time of Christ, this thing went into a massive building construction and became quite a monumental temple. Okay. And quite an impressive site. Now, we got, as we're back in Revelation 17, we need to remember that Revelation's written in the style of Jewish apocalyptic literature, as is Daniel and many of the prophets. And like Revelation, Daniel is not written chronologically either. So remember those things. But the prostitute is writing, and her desires are, are such, and her demise is certain. And that will happen to every society. When we see societies fall, it isn't that the beast has been destroyed and is no more, but the harlot that rides on her is gone. And it happens, and it happens, and it happens over and over again. Now, in verse 1, we see the unnamed angel, but he was active in the seven bold judgments. And we already saw another angel mentioned in 14.8, uh, that uh, said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Okay. Well, we saw the background of Babylon, you know, and we see who Babylon is. And God used wicked Babylon to capture Judah. Then he used the Medes and Persians to overthrow Babylon. And then on and on it goes, others and others. Finally, we get to Rome, you know. And Babylon, this great city that rules over all the earth, according to verse number five, is really, spiritually, the predominant worldview of the lost. Idolatry, pride, cruelty, and greed. And if you want to put it real simply, Babylon symbolizes the city of man as opposed to the city of God. Okay. And, and so we're living in this, we see this taking place. We ought not to be surprised. If you want, go oh, just flip over to 18 for a minute. We won't do expose, we won't expose this, but I just want to read you some select verses from Revelation 18. 18.4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Verse number eight. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death, mourning, and famine, and shall be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Look at verse 16. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. These are God's saints that are rejoicing in this, by the way. Verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Verse 24. 
And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who've been slain on the earth. And then chapter 19. After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged on her the blood of all of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. You notice verse 4 of chapter 17. Just to go back there. Verse 4 of chapter 17. I'll read it to you. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her great uh, impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name Mystery Babylon, great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And so we see her origin can be found actually all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. And the wicked society of Babel that God came down and destroyed and dispersed. She's built on rebellion against God. She's built on pride, arrogance, and lies. And it's a wicked worldview that's opposed to God and, expo- and opposed to the godly. Well, what should we think about that? Just to conclude, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, I'll read it to you. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, power of the air, and the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. What do we say? I find it an amazing thing. When God gets a hold of a person and God changes them. Conversion, regeneration is a very instantaneous thing. But you really can't see it. It's the work of God. It's the declaration of God. It's forensic. But when justification comes, you know, then regeneration will always be part of that. God changes us, changes us in his time, changes us in his way. But it's amazing to see a Christian and the way a Christian thinks and then the way the Christian used to think, you know. And if you were saved a little bit later in life, you really can see this contrast in your own life. The way you used to think, and, and you know, there's people out there today. I'll just close it up with this. There's people out there today chanting for their rights to kill unborn babies. And we can hate them. And we can know that God will judge them. But wouldn't it be great if God would save them? They won't be calling for the the death of babies anymore if God saves them. Instead, their mind will be totally changed, transformed by God himself. And, And that's the way we were. Let us be really, really cautious here. The way we were, dead in trespasses and sins, walking, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, we were there. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. But God in his mercy. And that's the wonderful thing about it, you know. The change that takes place by God himself. And that's what we're about. You know, we really aren't too worried yet about being martyrs and blood flowing. So many of our brothers and sisters have to be concerned about that this very day, you know. But they stand strong in the faith because God gives them strength to do so. Well, may God give us strength to stand in the midst of a wicked generation, not just politically, although sometimes we have to do that, but certainly with the gospel to realize that the gospel is what changes the hearts of men and women. And uh, it's what changed our hearts and it's what makes us to be some, a new creature, one that we never were before. So may God bless there. We, let's pray and we'll go to communion. Our Lord God, we thank you for the change that only you can make. And you give it to us in story form in the book of Revelation. You give it to us in symbolic form. You give us in Jewish apocalyptic form to see a prostitute whose sin isn't just sexual immorality. It's all sorts of sins that go against you and pride and arrogance and idolatry and all these and luxury and all these sorts of things that, that people desire and want but will never satisfy. And she rides on a beast of great power and wields great authority. But Lord, it's all going to come to an end. Interestingly enough, Babylon before the beast. But it all comes to an end and all that remains are the children of God in the new heaven and the new earth as the others are wasted and thrown into the eternal garbage pit. So, Lord, we thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. Give us compassion on those that anger us as we hear them talk. Give us compassion for their souls, that we would pray for their souls. Help us not to imbibe of their philosophies, but help us, Father, to be witnesses to them. And we pray that Jesus Christ would receive for himself the glory. In his name we pray, amen.